I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, and welcome to Earthfire Radio. Earthfire Institute is a wildlife sanctuary and rehabilitation center whose mission is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. Darja Mail is a renowned and multi-award-winning journalist and author who has reported extensively on veterans' resistance against U.S.-Iraq policy and is now focusing on anthropogenic climate disruption in the environment. His stories have been published with The Guardian, The Huffington Post, The Nation and The Independent, and he has appeared on the BBC, NPR, and numerous other radio and television stations around the globe. He's also a feature writer for truthout.org, where he writes a climate feature page titled Climate Disruption Dispatches. After nearly a decade overseas as a war reporter, Dar recently published The End of Ice, bearing witness and finding meaning in the path of climate disruption, which chronicles the planet's loss of ice and the consequences to nature and humans. Through a journey that takes him around the world, documenting melting glaciers, disappearing reefs, and ecosystem collapse. He renews his passion for the planet's wild places and learns to cherish the Earth in a way he never has been able to before. According to influential author and thinker Howard Zinn, Dar is a superb journalist and the most honorable tradition of that craft, and I agree. His website is darjamail.net. Hi, Dar. It was wonderful to meet you a few weeks ago at a reversing extinction symposium. And I learned about you and your work, and I was fascinated and impressed and horrified and because of the implications of your work. And I would really like to hear you tell me about why you wrote the book. Well, I, uh, the book, I have a book that just came out. It's called uh, 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 The End of Ice. The subtitle is Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. And uh, what I did is I went around the world to the hotspots of runaway climate change and places like the Great Barrier Reef for what's happening to the coral to South Florida for sea level rise to Denali up in Alaska and other glaciers to uh, the Amazon rainforest and a lot of other places to try to really bring home to people what it looks and feels like on a very personal level when you go to these places where so much is being lost, uh, either, either lost altogether or degraded to the point where things aren't functional anymore. And the book actually started a long time ago. I, 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 I became known as a journalist for my war reporting in Iraq. And people often ask, well, uh, how did you go from being a war reporter to covering climate? And the book actually started when I moved up to Alaska in 1996. I started spending a lot of time in the mountains, which meant immediately I was faced with receding glaciers that were receding more and more dramatically every passing year to uh, um, crazy weather patterns in Anchorage where there literally wasn't snow on the ground during Christmas 
uh, one of the years I was there. So really dramatic changes in the Arctic, which we're now seeing, of course, uh, much more prevalently. But that, that planted the seed in 1996, which I, even at the time, I wasn't really uh, aware of the climate crisis and, and w was a long time away from becoming a journalist. But that planted the seed. And then I became a journalist in Iraq and covered that for a lot of years. And then in 2010, I always knew I wanted to start come, to come back and cover the climate crisis with my journalism. And I started doing that in 2010. And then the idea for this book started brewing around 2015, uh, at which point, you know, I, I uh, uh, got a contract and started working on it in earnest, and the book was just published this January. Would you like to share the main points? Not that you can do it in an hour, but the, what you think is most important for people to know? Well, um, and this is really challenging information to hear. Um, it's because we, we are at a point now in the climate crisis where we have really gone off the rails. I mean, there, there are numerous runaway feedback loops that have kicked in and the world certainly that I grew up in is, is a thing of the past that we, we will be living on a very, very different planet from now on. And it's changing dramatically uh, by the day at this point. So um, gosh, there's so much that I did cover in the book, but just some, some broad brushstrokes of what's going on uh, on the planet uh, are the fact that, uh, for example, there's been some more recent studies just this year, 2019, that have come out and shown how the uh, insect pop, the global insect population, for example, because of climate impacts, because of insecticide use, and because of human encroachment and, and habitat loss, all of these things together, we're losing 2.4% annually of the entire insect biomass on the planet, which means that we are on a trajectory that within 100 years, if things don't change dramatically, we will lose insects on the planet. Um, that's bad news for humans as well, because they pollinate 75% of all the food that we grow. Uh, and in short, without them, uh, humans aren't going to uh, last very long on the planet. Uh, another very startling piece of information is that the oceans have absorbed 93% of all the heat that we've added into the atmosphere, and they've absorbed half of that heat since just 1997. So literally, as we speak, the oceans are acidifying from pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, they're deoxygenating, and they're, they're warming. Uh, a pace. And this is extremely worrisome because, again, uh, if the oceans aren't healthy, this spells big trouble for everything living on land as well. Uh, and then, if we, uh, another point that I think is very important to consider the Arctic sea ice, uh, there's right around the time we're, we're taping this interview, there's been yet another round of very, very shocking, worrisome reports coming out about how dramatically the Arctic is, is, is melting. In fact, just this past March, uh, the, the average temperature of Alaska was 20 degrees Fahrenheit above normal. I mean, this is just stunning. I mean, think about where you live if in March the, the, the average temperature was 20 degrees above normal. It's really amazing, but that's because the Arctic's warming far faster than the rest of the planet. 
And so the, based on observational data, not studies or projections, but based on observational data, if trends continue, the Arctic sea ice in the summer will start having periods where it won't exist uh, as early as about five years from now. And at which point people might wonder, well then, okay, what happens if we lose the Arctic sea ice? At which point uh, this means global weather patterns are dramatically altered, things like rainfall patterns, increasing incidence of drought, and our ability to grow food to the degree that we're growing it and the places that we're growing it now will be dramatically altered uh, right after that happens, the loss of the sea. We start losing the sea ice for periods of the summer. Uh, so it's, those are some of the broad brushstrokes. Uh, a couple of more would be um, we've, we've already have, we've already in, inserted enough CO2 into the atmosphere that the last time there was this much CO2 in the atmosphere, sea levels were tens of meters higher than they are right now. I mean, conservative estimates uh, are 10 to 20 meters higher than they are right now. And there's actually numerous estimates much, much higher than that. So the point is really, we, while we've to this point increased the global temperature 1.1 C above pre-industrial temperatures, the damage has in effect already been done insofar as with this much CO2 in the atmosphere, with how much heat's already been absorbed into the oceans, that we are in a situation now where the injury's already been done to the planet. We're essentially now just waiting for the planet to catch up insofar as how it's exhibiting the signs of injury and the wounds. And that's why things keep getting more and more dramatic over time, because this is the planet essentially expressing the injury that has already been inflicted upon it. So it's, it's, um, it's really, really hard information. And it's, it's been a really challenging book for me to research and go into the field to see with my own eyes and then write. It's been very challenging for me uh, uh, emotionally and psychologically to, to do this work. But then the book has also simultaneously caused some really dramatic positive changes in my life. So um, these, the, which I know that we're going to talk about. Um, and, and I think that's also indicative of the intensity of these times that we're in with the climate crisis and what's being called out of us as we, we, we go through this moment in history. So how is it that you found some positive experiences out of all this from writing the book? Well, um, the book has, while working on the book, uh, coincidentally, at exactly the right moment at each stage of my journey working on the book, uh, it's as though the right person has been brought into my life at the right time. Whether it's a scientist I needed to get in touch with to get an interview or a contact made so I could get out into the field to do certain research or uh, meeting someone that could help me carry uh, what what was going on inside while I was working on the book because needless to say working on this research just you probably notice how it felt hearing some of that information I was just sharing what happens inside of you yeah. and so I lived in that world for years working on this book so I ended up needing more help than I even 
understood that I would need doing that work. And so um, it's, it's really a situation where um, one of the examples I would point to is uh, our mutual friend, Dina Metzger, who is a healer, uh, just contacted me out of the blue. It was early spring, if I remember correctly, about a year ago, a little over a year ago. And she said, she wrote me an email and she said, look, you, you've been carrying a lot for all of us from your rock work and then now with your climate work. Uh, and she said, you know, I do some work that I think would help, help you carry or help you even, you know, set down a lot of what you've been carrying. And so she invited me down to a gathering where she lives in California uh, with a small group of people that she works with uh, to do some healing work. And uh, I at first thought, wow, that, you know, this, I get plenty of emails from plenty of people with different agendas. And I, I was a little skeptical at first. And I thought, well, I don't know. And I, I wrote her back kind of a noncommittal email. And then she kept writing me. And, and then a couple of emails later, I realized, you know, this, this woman really knows what she's talking about. Like she's, she's, she really gets what's happening on the planet. And she really gets what that means for all of us, especially those of us who are really watching it closely and paying close attention. And so our exchanges deepened and I, I basically learned, okay, she's the real deal. And um, she, I would be a fool to pass up this opportunity. So I went down there and we did a lot of work, uh, we being her and her group and myself, um, about what's happening to the planet and what comes up and a lot of different types of healing work. And then, so it was a very extraordinary gift to have met Dina Metzger. But then while I was there, she had also invited a close friend of hers, uh, a Cherokee elder named Stan Rushworth, who is also a healer. And Stan came and he's also a Vietnam vet. And we had some time together uh, down there. We shared a yurt together for a couple of nights, which meant plenty of good conversations uh, well into the evening. And then as part of the work I was doing with Dina, uh, he, he, he and I did some really deep healing work together. And from that moment on, uh, he's been a very close personal friend. And, uh, and, and while I was there, in fact, a, an extraordinary thing that happened was I had the book done when I was there and I was literally doing the final edits, which means for, for those uh, listening to this who've, who've written a book means, uh, you, you know that it means having literally the paper manuscript in your hand with a red pen or pencil and going through and literally just final edits like, okay, let's lose this comma, let's add one word here. Just very, very minor things before 10 days later, the thing's going to the publisher. And um, I had the last chapter of the book done. And then after my experience down there uh, with Dina and Stan, uh, literally I, I, I knew that the, the whole ending of my book was wrong. I had to completely change the ending of my book. And, and I did, uh, thanks to discussions with them, thanks to some indigenous stories that Stan sh had shared with me. And I literally came home from that and rewrote the very ending of my book, which of course uh, changed really the whole genre and the whole trajectory of the entire book. It was that profound of experience that really shifted my entire outlook and thinking 
about this entire crisis, uh, which came down to how are we going to comport ourselves during this time, going into this phase of existence on the earth where we've never been here before as a species. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. So how can we best comport ourselves during this time? So the ending changed from what to what to, I know you said to comporting ourselves, but what was the feeling of the change? The original ending was really, it was a bit self-centered um, <laughs> in that it was, well, I'm doing what I can, living in my solar powered house, growing my own food, and I'm just going to try to appreciate these parts of the earth while they're still with us and and keep doing what I can, even though essentially all is lost. I mean, that was essentially the original ending of the book. But um, then it shifted to the, the, the iteration that got published, which is um, no matter how bleak things appear to be, and they appear extremely bleak now, and it, it does, things are getting darker by the day. Nevertheless, we have a moral obligation to serve the planet and take care of it and serve and protect future generations no matter what. And that the, the focus for me shifted from kind of get a giving up, all is lost type of uh, uh, existential crisis to all may be lost. We don't know for sure. It looks like that's the case, but we don't know for sure. But either way, even if it is, I, I have just kept coming back around to, we have a moral obligation to be stewards of the planet, to take care of as much of it as possible, as well as we can, and to serve future generations and do what we can to get them ready for the world that they're inheriting. And, and when I look at what's happening on the planet now through that lens, uh, instead of just being depressed and, oh gosh, I don't know what to do, all of a sudden my entire thinking changes and there's so much to do. Like we don't even have, uh, you know, there's not enough time to do what needs to be done. So there's no shortage and, and um, I better get out there and get busy. We all better get out there and get busy. Can you describe a little more what happened to make that change for you? Well, essentially what it boiled down to was um, working on the book broke my heart over and over and over, you know, seeing the loss that's happening around the planet to coral, to forests, to glaciers, to people, to other species. Each piece of that was just this huge breaking open. And so I, uh, um, I, it brought me to a point where okay, like I, I am completely broken open now. Where do I go? What do I do with all of this? And so um, that made me really change direction from being deeply pessimistic and kind of very, very morbid about what was happening to um, I have to find a different way to be with all of this. Like I can't, I can't just keep carrying all this intense information and then just in kind of in the book or in my perspective of it with, oh, well, screw it. It's all over. You know, there's nothing left to do. Like 
like I, I need something else to do. Like I, you know, action is the antidote to despair, but finding a way to do that that's honest and that's, that's truthful because I still, you know, there, we're not gonna get that heat out of the oceans. We're not gonna stop the industrial growth society from raping and pillaging the planet. This is ongoing every day. Um, there's so many things with the climate crisis that are already baked into the system and we're not going to stop them. Um, but be that as it may, I have to find a way to be, I have to have meaning in my life. I have to have reason to get up and still try to do the right thing, regardless of what the results might be. And so it's really shifted my entire ontology to, instead of being results oriented in my work personally and professionally, but, um, what thing can I do that has the most integrity and that can, can help the most um, um, on even just a local level instead of doing things that are results oriented? That's been a real big shift that's happened as well. I think on some level, most of us are feeling some despair, not as deeply and vividly as you because of you're seeing it and writing about it and being immersed in it. But one of the reasons I was asking you is, if you could talk at all about what happened with Dina or Stan that was helpful to you, that might be helpful to other people so they can get out of the despair for, them, for their own sake and so that they can begin to take action rather than be paralyzed. Well, I think really it's, it's having been through the, the healing work that occurred there, which you know was really personal and, and I'm not gonna really get into details around that. And a lot of it I can't even remember because it was just really experiential from conversations and other things. But um, um, it's really what I just shared of if I am taking actions based on, if they're result oriented actions like, okay, we need to do this to get, do X to get Y or to stop Y from happening. Um, there's no way that it even makes logical sense to keep taking actions in this paradigm. Um, the the CO2 is already in the atmosphere, the heat's already in the oceans, and and you know there's no techno fix to what's going on. I mean, all does appear to be lost. So I literally need to find new meaning to what I do and to why, and more importantly, to why I do it. And so instead of being results oriented, like oh we can change this or we can mitigate this, um, it comes down to doing the right thing simply because it's the right thing to do. And in doing that work, which really is heart work, I think, working with other people for, who, are, who are coming from that place as well, then um, that work's gonna go deeper and I think it's gonna have more impact. And, and again, regardless of whatever the results might be or might not be from that work, even if nothing comes from it at all, it comes down to that, as I said before, how are we going to comport ourselves during this time? Um, um, do we want to live with integrity? Do we want to do the right action? You know, I mean, uh, and this might be somewhat self-serving, but another way to look at it was, you know, if it's 30 years from now and I'm still around, uh, if, if a young person comes up and says, hey, you were there while there was still Arctic sea ice in the summers and there were still glaciers around the places where there were usually glaciers in the lower 48 states and uh, the, the brunt of the Amazon rainforest was still functioning. What did you do 
during that time, you know, knowing what was coming, what did you do? And I want to be able to say that I, I did, I was acutely aware of what was happening on the planet and I did everything that I could. And I, and I, I, I worked with other people doing the same thing. So it's really about doing the right thing, no matter what. And, and, and to me, that's really the essence of, you know, if we're going to be healthy human beings psychologically, I think that's what it comes down to, especially at this point in history. What do you mean by heart work? We all know intuitively what it means, but I thought you might expand on it a bit. You said if we do heart work, it's going to go deeper and have a better chance of having an impact. To me, that means, um, you know, not doing things for reasons other than that's what I feel really deeply in my heart to do, you know, and, and am I, you know, I, I think for me cutting all the way down to the quick of it because of my experience working on my book is, am I working for the planet or not? You know, am I doing things because I love this living planet and I want to take care of it and I want to do what I can, even though things appear all as lost as though all is lost. Um, if I really love and care about the planet, I'm going to, that's going to be my motivation. And then when I do things from that place, I meet other people like you, like Dina, like Stan, that are also operating from that place. And so it's going to deepen my entire world because these are my friends now, you mm -hmm. know, I, I didn't know any of you until I started working on the book. And I think that's not a unique experience to me. I know that you've had this experience and I know plenty of other people that, hey, yeah, I started down this path and my whole life changed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's just a really good positive byproduct from when I think we're doing the right work for the right reasons. Did you feel in retrospect now, do you feel like you were guided or helped in any way by something other than human? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, there's, there's energies at work here. Uh, and I, I liken them coming directly from the earth that, that when I started working on this book, the further into this process I got, the more it felt like it was, I was being carried. And the way I, I describe writing the book is there were plenty of times writing the text of the book, you know, coming home from my research trips, having photos and notebooks and notes on my computer and, and interviews to transcribe and things like this. And then once I started pulling all that together into the chapters and actually physically writing them, um, there, were, there were a lot of the times during the book when it, I would sink into this zone and it, it just felt like I was just a typist, you know, that uh, I've described it to friends as, as something akin to the book really wrote itself or more accurately, you know, the earth was writing itself through the book, you know, and I think that came from the fact that instead of me doing a standard, just the facts ma'am kind of journalism that I've done through the, a lot of my career. Instead, it was like, you know, I, I love this planet and, and I love the things that I wrote about and that I got to go see firsthand and I care about them. And, and I want to do as, as much justice to them as I can through that writing and through this work. And so when I was coming from that place, it really, I could, like tangibly feel the support from the planet, you know, both evidenced in how that writing would just flow out of me at times when I was really in that process <clears throat> working on the book 
as well as um, the types of support that came up for the book, um, both from financial support to, like I said earlier, meeting the right scientists when I really needed to meet someone to, to go to a particular area of the field to then the deeper healing work that we talked about became when I was just about finished with the book. This is a strange question, but if you feel that the earth was helping you and you were speaking for her, that in some way that implies she has hope. Well, I, I don't know what it means. Um, I just know that, you know, the way I've written about this in the book and the way I talk about it, going around talking about the book is that life wants to live and given the smallest minuscule chance life will live. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I shifted literally from being a doomsday guy to saying that was arrogant of me to believe that. And what I've really been lived into by working on the book is I can't say that anymore because as bleak as things appear to be, we just don't know. Um, and one story that I share is, uh, and, and I, I write about this in the book too, is that um, I was up on a peak in the Olympics and, you know, tree line up here is around 5,200 feet. And I was about up near the top of a mountain, probably about 2,000 feet higher than that, a little bit over 7,000 feet. And it's just all rocks and soil. It's, you're, you know, you're way above tree line. And there, you know, literally there was this one little crack in a rock and literally growing out of this crack, there's this tree. You know, and this is a place that at least six months a year is buried in snow and ice. There's freezing temperatures, howling winds, hurricane force winds on a regular basis. And it's nearly half a mile above tree line where trees generally don't grow. And yet there's this tree growing out of this rock and it's alive and it's still growing. And it's basically not supposed to be there, you know, but there it is. And and there's numerous other examples that I, I, I could use for that. But the point is that um, life wants to live. And, you know, that's why you have life thousands and thousands of feet below the surface of the ocean in life in places where it should be way too hot for life or too cold, you know, that it, it wants to live. And, and, and I think that's, that's really the primary thing that I would point to when I, when I talk about the fact that, look, we don't, we don't know, where this is going to go. We know it's going to get extremely intense. We know there's going to be a massive loss of life. Um, but as far as um, can we say that humans aren't going to make it, you know, we, we don't know. I read an article recently about a guy who just found the exact place in the geological level um, when the asteroid hit the earth and all the animals went extinct. And that particular article it said that something like 90%, 99% of all life was extinguished at that time. It was a scientific article. I'd have, I'd have to look for the reference. But an enormous amount of life was extinguished. And from that time, look what's here now. This incredible profusion of exquisite life. Mm-hmm. And that's when it was almost extinguished. 
So that's my response to your comment about life wants to live. I would add not only does life want to live and is incredibly persistent like your tree in the crack, but it's also enormously creative, uh, powerful, ubiquitous. Um, I think it's um, not arrogant, but um, not necessarily a great wisdom to say life will be wiped out. Life as we know it may be. And we certainly have a tremendous moral responsibility to do what we can, particularly since we're the ones who are causing it all. When I say we, I think it's really true. In some ways, a lot of us are helpless in the front uh, of all of the huge, powerful organizations and things that are happening, but we're also not helpless. Every one of us can do something. Um, and one person can do an incredible amount. They can start whole movements. They can change perceptions like your book, et cetera. So um, it's a paradox, but it makes no difference at all. As you said, we have to do, if we're honorable in terms of loving the gift that was given us of being alive and honorable in terms of um, seeing the suffering and, and the beauty around us and wanting to take care of it, uh, we have to do everything we can. And, it's also an honor to protect. It's an honor to try to protect what we've been given enough that we have enough food and we have the intelligence and we have the capacity um, to think. Uh, the attempt to protect in and of itself is a very beautiful thing in, in my mind. Um, and I think that what you just said, the, the attempts to protect, I mean, to me right now, that's where meaning can be found, you know, and it's, it, the meaning can be found in those acts, whatever those are for each of us. And they're going to be a little bit different for all of us. You know, mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no panacea solution to any of this. Um, but each one of us is going to be called, is already being called. I think we just have to listen to learn what, what, what those acts are going to be. And I think once we learn what those are and then start engaging in those acts, that's where all the meaning and the beauty is to be found at this point, you know, and again, um, letting go of whatever the result of those might be, which is a challenging th thing to do, especially in this Western culture of ours, but really just finding the meaning and I'm, I'm gonna try to take care of this land where I live you know, the best I can. Um, and I, I don't know what's going to happen in other places, but I know right here, I'm going to take care of this land, you know, and I, I get, a, I get a huge amount of meaning from that. So, you know, I, I come back home from being on book tour and such, and I go work on my land, you know, or I go do something in the garden. And, and to me, you know, I'm, I'm literally actively directly working with and, and, helping take care of this one little piece of the planet where I live. And I get a tremendous amount of meaning and solace by doing that. It's amazing how the earth can heal us, huh? Solace. Indeed. Indeed. So beautiful, such beautiful access we would have to something that would be so helpful and meaningful to us. What's, I guess, one other question, I keep coming back to the same thing because I have these conversations with people online and it's always, well, what can I do? How do I find what it is that I can do? I don't know if you have any suggestions about that. 
or how helpful you think the um, meeting that we had uh, where you and I just met um, in a small group attempting to really come to some understanding and ask for help beyond ourselves. What, what do you see as not encouragement, but helpful direction to people? Other than we also have to look to ourselves. Uh, but in case you have anything to say to that. Well, I, I'll, I'll say a little more about what I mentioned earlier, because really all I can do is I think share my own personal experience. Uh, because I've, I spent a lot of time kind of flailing and not knowing what to do and trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, really what it came down to me. And I, interestingly enough, I ended up learning this kind of retrospectively on the tail end of working on my book was I had to, you know, I have regularly gone into the mountains. That's my favorite place to go be on the planet. And, and what I've learned is I was going there consistently because that's where I really listened to the earth. And that's where I really heard and got perspective and got filled back up. And it's really where I think I went to honor the earth too and go and just admire and be mm. amazed and in awe. Mm. And so in that sense, I think worship. And, and, and it was when I was in the mountains, that's where I've had my ideas and callings that have changed my life. That's how I was called that's where I was when I really felt the pull to go to Iraq. And that's where I started as a journalist. And then later it was, it was repeated trips into the mountains where I got real clear. This is the book that I want to do next, you know, and then I, I stayed loyal to that. And so for me, it's about really getting, going out into nature and, and really listening to see what then comes up, you know, from the planet into me. And then that's, that's where I got my calling. And that's, that's where I learned, okay, this is the next thing that you're going to go do. And I believe that these are such extraordinary times and they are so dark and they are so intense that I feel that ideally as many people as possible would be doing that because I think we're all going to be called to use whatever our own skills and strengths are in our own unique personal way to go do something for the planet now. And, and I think that that's, frankly, going to come from the planet. Um, it's not going to come because an activist said to go do this or because some political group said to go do this. But, you know, what do I personally feel really called to go do? And, and that could look like anything, right? You know, and I, I've run into some young people that one of them's like, well, I feel very called to go be a doctor. So great. She's going to go be a you know, go to school and study to be a doctor. And then others are not going to go to school at all. And they're going to go farm or they're going to go work with their hands, you know, learn how to do woodworking, things like this. Um, so it could look like anything. But the point is, you know, I, I feel like we have to go down to the source to really find out and be told, I think, what that is. And, and uh, you know, really trusting the intelligence of the planet for that. And I, my experience has been if I really listen, I'm going to hear what I need to hear. And, and I, I know that's not unique to me. I know that that's happening to people every day right now. I wonder if she's speaking louder or we're listening more. I would imagine it's both. And the group that you and I went to 
you find that kind of thing something we might want to talk about a bit and encourage other people to do similar things? Is that a useful thing to do? Well, I, I think, you know, us getting together with a very unique, uh, diverse group of people from around the world in a, in a really unique setting to kind of brainstorm. And then sometimes we brainstorm, sometimes we got really quiet and just listened. Um, and then, and then, of course, just having the casual conversations with each other in between these kind of listening and sharing sessions and uh, to just see what would come up about what else might be done for during this crisis. And I, I think that was useful. I think, I think, you know, if there's different iterations of that that people can do um, wherever they are, I, I think the times demand it. And I think one of the most important aspects of it, and I'll, I'll just say this because here we are talking in the United States in the, the belly of the beast, so to speak, of Western imperialism and, and settler colonialist thinking that it's a we time. It's, you know, the time of the lone wolf is over. You know, like we, we our only hope of getting through this is together and communally and coming together and talking and listening and thinking together that the times demand that because uh, anything short of that is isn't going to get us anywhere and it, to me that's one of the more powerful things also that i've learned through this book and then meeting all these different people is you know the kind of community that that is happening because it, it has to happen One final question would be, uh, what's the response been to your book? Fortunately, the response has been really, really good. The book's doing well, and that it's it's into a fourth printing now. And there's wow, since January. Yeah, and and um, I get individual emails, and then when I meet people at my talks who have read the book, um, people are deeply appreciative at how emotionally raw the book it is and how personal it is and how I did bring the hard science, but I brought it in a very human earth-based way and, and, and did so as an homage to the planet as well. And so I've, I've gotten really great response and, and people have been very, very appreciative of that and felt like it's a pretty unique book because of that, because it, it's very, very personal. I don't try to hide any of the emotions that came up for me when I was in the field. And when I was working on the book, so it's been a really positive response, which I, I, I see as a, you know, a, a good thing that it's helped really, I think, connect people into the planet uh, in that way, despite, you know, this point of the climate crisis where we are. I guess there was one more thing. When we were talking, when we met, you said you didn't think we had 12 years because of feedback loops that are beginning to accelerate things. Would you like to talk about that just a little so people get a sense of the urgency and we work harder? <laughs> right. So, you know, the 12 years comes from the IPCC report that came out this past fall saying we had 12 years to avert catastrophic climate impacts. And there was no new data in that report. Uh, we're, we're well off the cliff. You know, that's why I always mention that statistic about how much heat is in the oceans. You're not going to remove that heat from the oceans. That alone has locked in meters and meters of sea level rise from just West Antarctic and in Greenland melting alone, 
what's been already baked into the system. We are on track, probably best case scenario, at a minimum of 3C warming, which is absolutely catastrophic. So there's the insect statistics that I shared. I mean, there's numerous things that show we are really off the cliff. Uh, there's, there's, there's numerous feedback loops kicked in that we can't stop. And so we have to know this reality that we're in so as to have that inform um, how we're going to respond and with, with how much energy uh, personally, as far as getting, okay, we are in a crisis. We are out of time. Now, what do we want to do? Now, how do we choose to respond to that? Because I think that level of urgency, not to panic or scare people, but to have that level of urgency at the forefront, I think is really important that we, we just don't have time to screw around. I guess I would like to uh, personally thank you for the work. I, I can't imagine, it's hard for me here living with the animals, the bears and the wolves that I live with, knowing what's gonna happen to them when I see who they are, the beauty of who they are and, and seeing the potential starvation and we're still hunting them. <laughs> we're not even, but the pain of that is very hard to bear and the pain that you're bearing and bore, um, I give enormous honor to Dina to having felt that in you and reaching out to a total stranger to offer her help for the work that you're doing for all of us. And you're doing it for us. I don't know how much you're doing it for us and how much you're doing it for the planet that you love, but either way, the tremendous amount of pain that you must have experienced and the courage that it took. So um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is I wanted to share your really important work. Important is a very shallow word for that. And to honor it and thank you. Well, Susan, that means a, a lot coming from you who've spent far longer doing deep work for the planet than I have. And it's, it's, I really appreciate that. That means a lot. And, and it's, it's been a real pleasure to meet you. And now you're my friend and I know I'm going to see you again soon. So yeah. it's, it's really, it's really an honor. And, you know, it's, this is that community thing that I mentioned. It's like, yeah. you do this good work and the community forms around you. Yeah. So I'm glad we have our, we're in community together now. This is Dr. Susan Eyrick for Earthfire Radio, a production of Earthfire Institute. If you would like to help with our mission to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature, please make a donation at our website, www.earthfireinstitute.org. The soundscapes are by Wild Sanctuary Presents, Bernie Krauss and Philip Auberg. Thank you for listening.